This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. So some of you may have uh, heard me talk about on previous podcasts, and if you have, uh, Mark Livesey's Tree Lion Academy is an amazing e-scouting master class that I've been taking and using it to try and help myself. And not only have I been using it for elk hunting stuff because I'm not going on an elk hunting trip this year, but I'm actually trying to apply it and it's working rather well for learning uh, e-scouting for deer. So I'm kind of using that, not all the way through it yet. He's always adding new stuff. In fact, I think he's got another module coming out as we speak. But I just want to let you guys know that Mark was nice enough to give me a code to save you guys money. So if you're thinking about uh, joining the course, put in the code PC2020 and save yourself 20 bucks. And now let's get on to the show. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I'm talking to Rick Spicer. Um, uh, pack rat, is it survival? Officially, it's Pack Rat Outdoor Center. Pack Rat Outdoor Center. So, Rick, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, let you kind of take it away and introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, sure thing. Um, yeah, again, my name is Rick, um, and uh, for the last 21 years, uh, I've worked at a, a business in Fayetteville, Arkansas, called the Pack Rat Outdoor Center, and we are primarily a, a specialty retail uh, shop where we sell equipment for backpackers, uh, canoe and kayakers, rock climbers, and, and a little more recently, the last several years, uh, bushcrafters, and now even archers. We, we carry longbows and things like that. So we, uh, we try to be a, 
a bit of a one-stop shop for anyone going outdoors looking for technical equipment, basically. Um, and then through that store, uh, I also teach classes. Uh, I'm not the only one, actually. We've got other folks there as well that, that teach a variety of different clinics and classes and things like that. We run everything from women-specific backpacking classes to the navigation courses I teach to primitive skills classes like uh, hand drill and bow drill all the way up to um, the uh, adventure race uh, or adventure challenge that we put on in the springtime that's called the Bruja Bushwhack that's a, basically a primitive skills uh, challenge um, that's similar to an adventure race but it revolves around uh, bushcraft and primitive skills basically so um, we <laughs> We kind of cover a lot of ground uh, in that regard. No kidding. That's uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> All the stuff you guys cover at one store. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot. <laughs> so let's get into you a little bit because uh, so so the people kind of get an idea of you. Um, I mean, you're quite the uh, adventure seeker. At least you were in your in your younger years. Uh, all the way from climbing mountains to uh, pretty much trying to live out in the woods for as long as you could, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I've always just had a, a kind of a fascination with remote, wild places. And, um, you know, I, I kind of, I guess in some ways it's led me to be kind of a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none because anytime you, you spread yourself thin enough to try to do too many things, I feel like it's really hard to get real good at anything. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly somewhat guilty of that, but... Uh, yeah, when I was younger, um, I was kind of obsessed with rock climbing, and that was kind of my life for a lot of years, and I really did that, and I got into mountaineering and spent a lot of time, as much time as I could afford to, basically kind of traveling around, and I've been to probably, oh, I don't know, uh, 10 or 12 different countries on climbing trips, that type of thing. Um, and, but predominantly, most of my country, my climbing's been in North America and South America, um, and uh I love the Cascade Range in Washington. I love the Teton Range in Wyoming and, uh, you know, lots of other places in, in uh, Idaho and Montana and places like that as well. But as I've gotten older, um, you know, and now that I have a family, uh, I don't travel quite as much for climbing and my, my interests have shifted more somewhat into bushcraft primitive skills and, and specifically bow hunting. I, I spent a lot of time focusing on archery and but, um, you know, I, I still do a lot of things, you know, right now I've been smallmouth fishing some because <laughs> that's kind of going on, you know, in summertime. And actually another thing I love doing is, uh, technical canyoneering. I, I'm kind of obsessed with, um, the desert Southwest and I usually try to make it out there a couple of times a year if I can. And, um, I'm, I really enjoy exploring, um, uh, Native American sites, uh, you know, trying to visit those places respectfully, taking photographs of rock art, pictographs, uh, petroglyphs, things of that nature, and then exploring slot canyons. Um, but I, I really like the technical ones where you're rappelling through canyons and swimming in freezing cold water with wetsuits on and that type of stuff. And I just got back from doing that about a month ago, um, being out in Southern Utah. So, um, yeah, I, I just somehow, I don't know, I, I just try to stay busy, you know. I've, somehow, I, I, you know, I get in trouble sometimes, I think, because I try to push it and, and do too much. But um, 
I've got an amazing family and um, they're very supportive and I try to take them along with me as, as often as I can um, and a, a, a lot of freedom at the place that I work. And so I've been very fortunate to be able to do a lot of different kinds of things in my life. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. So um, are your kids kind of starting to get into the whole like uh, wilderness skills type thing then? Are they pretty interested uh, in it? To, I mean, to some degree, you know, they are, they're still quite young. My son, uh, he'll be uh, going into third grade here this next year. And my daughter's just going to be starting kindergarten. So they're, you know, they're still quite young. But I absolutely take them uh, out in the woods with me. And um, in fact, you know, they were out on this last river trip I did last uh, weekend before last. And so we, I take them uh, paddling. We go camping. You know, we haven't done a big trip this summer, but last summer we did a two-week road trip out to Montana and Wyoming and, um, you know, did some bushcraft stuff while we were out there, a bunch of hiking, climbed a, a mountain while we were in uh uh, Montana, um, and, you know, just trying to expose them to as many different outdoor things as I can. I feel like that's so important for young people nowadays, you know, and my, my philosophy is the sooner you can get them started, the better off they're going to be in terms of just like learning to love that lifestyle and, and not really giving it a second thought, you know, Uh, it seems like if you wait too long in life, to get started on those kinds of things i've noticed with other kids sometimes the learning curve is a lot steeper because not only are there skills and things you have to learn how to do but to some degree you have to learn how to get comfortable being uncomfortable yeah <laughs> and yeah. uh you know there's a bit of an art to that you know and um if you you know if you wait until you're a teenager or older before you start doing any of these things not only are you trying to uh, learn these skills and th- those types of things, but you're also, um, you know, just trying to let your body adapt, you know, to being outside. And, and that's not to say everybody has to go out and do extended trips. And, you know, you can go out and learn a lot and have a blast just doing day trips and things like that. But I've always really loved spending, you know, uh, an ex- extended periods of time in the backcountry. Uh, and that's something I, that I, I want, hopefully, my kids uh, you know, want to do with me as they me get older. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. one of those that my kids are pretty young too right now. And so, you know, we try and get them out as much as we can, but I, I think our limiting factor is the, uh, 11 month old actually this month. So he'll, he'll be turning a year this month. So he's yeah. kind of the one that limits us more than anything right now, but pretty soon that's going to change and I'll be able to throw him in the pack and, and just yep. take off with the rest of them. So that'll be cool. Yep. That's that's exactly what we did. You know, I had a one of those kid carrier frame packs for a long time and all my kids around all over the place. I think, you know, my son, uh, he's about to turn nine and I think uh, three or four of his birthdays, he's been in Wyoming, you know, and we live in Arkansas. So, uh, you know, and I've toted him and my daughter around uh, uh, both here and out west a lot in one of those things. So. Um, you know, I would encourage parents, even if you've got young kids, I mean, certainly you're limited to what you're able to do with them when you get out, but you can certainly still get out and, uh, get them involved and, you know, have that be kind of part of their life growing up. I think that's important. I found, uh, I found that snacks are the key to, uh, keeping the kid occupied and happy. (laughs) 100%. It is all with kids. It is all about the snacks. (laughs) 
You got it. Uh, <laughs> I've got to ration you know, them and, and kind of limit them out, and then yep. just keep kind of doling them out as the time goes That's on. But that uh, is it. I could, I could I actually, any... I figured out, I could make a full, uh, full day fishing trip if I, if I uh, do it just right. <laughs> yep. I think any parent that's been in the game long enough kind of figures that out uh, pretty quickly. It's all about the snacks, and it doesn't have to be a whole lot, but they need to come with some frequency, you know, pretty pretty regularly. And as long as that continues to happen, you can you can you'll find a, a lot of people. You can get them to do about anything. <laughs> yep. My dad told me the other day. He goes, "You know, it only took me uh, it took me two kids and about three grandkids before I finally figured out the whole snack thing was the key to success as far as uh, fishing goes." Uh, <laughs> pretty much. That's right. Yeah. Pretty much. But so let's talk That's about funny. how you kind of got into. Uh, I mean, what you what you get into first? Was it the rock climbing? Was it the wilderness skills? Was it the foraging? Where where did you kind of just like really gravitate towards first? Well, you know, as a the earliest days as a kid, I mean, my father was a, a very dedicated uh, and still is a very dedicated angler and a hunter, um, and so that's where it started for me was you know hunting and fishing growing up and. Um, we didn't do a whole lot of backcountry type trips and those kinds of things, but we were out either on, on a lake or a river or in the woods, you know, deer hunting or squirrel hunting or something like that, you know, a lot, um, pretty regularly. And so that's kind of where my, the seed was planted, you know, for the outdoors. And then as I got older and I started learning about things, uh, I think the next couple of things that came from there were backpacking and rock climbing. Those, uh, backpacking probably came first just because you know you can sort of get into that and start figuring it out on your own a little easier than rock climbing you know with rock climbing it's a more technical uh endeavor and so you kind of need to have somebody that can mentor you a little bit more with that and so um i started hiking backpacking probably at the age of 12 or so and then uh two three years later i was fortunate enough to uh, be around some kids and, and some older adults who uh, knew a little bit about rock climbing and kind of got me pointed in the right direction and started going to rock climbing gyms and, you know, things like that. And one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, when I got out of high school, that was sort of, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And um, I started working at this store that I'm working at now and um, really for probably the better part of 15 years, um, you know, I guess from late teens into my mid-30s, uh, I really just wanted to travel and climb uh, as much as I could. And um, although, you know, I, I pretty much, that whole, most of that time, you know, I was still bow hunting and fishing and doing all that other stuff, but I was very passionate about climbing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I had always had an interest in primitive skills, and, you know, I remember I was probably about 12 or 13 when I got my first copy of Larry Dean Olson's uh, Outdoor Survival Skills, and if, if folks aren't familiar with him, he was the gentleman that started uh, Boulder Outdoor Survival School uh, in uh, Boulder, Utah, um, and, uh, I'll, I'll give a shameless plug to those guys cause I'm an alumni of that school as well. I've taken, uh, their, uh, hunter gatherer course, which I can't recommend enough. Uh, those guys do such a great job. Um, but he was one of the very first early on practitioners of primitive skills and began sharing those, 
and uh you know wrote that book and i don't know how many times i've read that book you know <laughs> since i was a kid um and I always kind of had an interest but i never really committed to it you know it was always something i would dabble in and kind of mess around with in my 20s um and even into kind of early 30s and then about probably oh um around the time my son was born i was i was you know just almost 10 years ago um I decided, I kind of decided, you know, I, I still wanted to climb and I knew that was going to continue to be something I was interested in, but I really wanted to get more serious about these, uh, about bushcraft and, and primitive skills. And at that point I knew I wasn't going to be able to be gone quite as much, you know, starting a family and having a young kid at home and, you know, needing to try to be around for my wife and all those kinds of things and, and be present in his life and, and that sort of thing. And so I, I needed something I could sort of you know, be challenged, but in a, you know, do it in a way that I didn't have to go far to do it. And bushcraft and primitive skills provided me with that. And that was kind of, kind of what set that off. And so for, you know, I guess in my early thirties for, uh, probably a better part of two, three, four years, I just consumed everything I could get my hands on reread books that I had read earlier before. And, um, just started talking to everybody and really just, um, you know, spending as much dirt time as I could just practicing and quite honestly failing a lot. (laughs) Um, You know, failure is one of the best teachers that you'll ever have, Um, you know, learning to do things the, the wrong way because, you know, you learn what not to do. And sometimes, you know, learning that way and learning what not to do in in some fashion can be just as important as learning, uh, I think what to do. Um, And so I, I think, after having done that for a while, um, I got to the point where after several years of it, I, I decided I wanted to start sharing those skills um, because I worked so hard to try to develop them. And at the time, you know, I, I had for several years at that point, I had already been teaching rock climbing. And so I've, it just felt like a natural progression. It was like, well, I'm already, uh, you know, an instructor for rock climbing. I feel like I'm able to uh, share technical skills with people, get the idea across and show them how to have a good time. And so I, I think I can do this with, with bushcraft, uh, as well. And, and that's exactly what I did. So I started to expand the, the type of classes that I was doing at the store. And first it was just like real basic intro to survival classes. Um, and real simple, basic uh, map and compass navigation, things of that nature. And then over time, that evolved into, uh, you know, hand drill, you know, classes, uh, you know, bow drill, more long-term survival, advanced navigation, um, and then all this uh once we had the idea to do that adventure race, uh, that kind of took off. And I, I teach classes for people too, that are specifically for that event. Um, you know, that for people that want to learn things, you know, but it's sort of too double faceted because on one hand they're, they're learning, they want to compete and they want to be challenged. But on the other hand, they're learning very practical and applicable skills for everyday life, you know? Um, and that, that thing's been a lot of fun. So, uh, and I think one of the things that I love about teaching is that there's really no better way to learn and get better yourself than to teach skills, you know, and it constantly challenges you to try to stay on top of your game, to explain things different ways, 
Um, and I've, I love, you know, to this day, I still take courses myself as often as I can, you know, um, I don't get to take them as often as I'd like to. Uh, but you know, if I could, you know, once or twice a year, I'd probably go take a course just because, um, there's just no end to it. Uh, there's always somebody that knows something that you don't know. Um, (laughs) and, uh, that, that I'm convinced of, it doesn't matter how hard you study something, how much you practice, how long you live. Um, it can be, a you know, a person who hasn't been doing it very long or someone that's doing it and been doing it their whole life. Um, but, uh, you know, everyone you meet knows something that you don't. And I think it's important to keep an open mind, uh, even if you've been, you know, practicing primitive skills for a long time, because uh, sometimes once you get good at, at certain skills, there's a tendency maybe to, um, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say you get cocky and that type of stuff so much as it is. You just feel like you uh, maybe you you sort of plateaued a little bit. And uh, that's why it's so important to spend time around other people, I think, that, uh, and share skills is because if people can open your eyes to think about things that maybe in new and different ways that you hadn't thought about before. No, I, I get it. I mean, that's something. You know, I, I was once told there's a fine line between confidence and cockiness. And it's, I mean, you could get your, yourself sure. in trouble for sure uh, trying to thinking you've got something down or something like that. And it turns out you really didn't know as much as you thought. And there's always the ever, the yep. ever eternal quest, if you will, to uh, try and always evolve and better yourself and learn more. And that's why I'm doing this whole podcast thing, man. I want to learn. I want to learn yeah. it all and talk to a bunch of people and, and uh, just learn as much as I can and share it. That's important. Cool. So, um, Absolutely. What was like, uh, what was the first plant then that you, uh, you ever identified or you found that, you know, you're like, Oh, okay. You know, I I can think back years ago, once I first figured out that like dandelion was edible and I was, I was kind of shocked because I was like, you know, this grows in everyone's yard. This is a weed. What do you mean you can eat this, you know? And so, you know, you've got, um, you know, everybody almost all over the country, you know, it's got dandelion in their yard. So you've got that as an edible and you've got broadleaf plantain as a medicinal. Um, almost everybody has got that growing near their house somewhere, you know, regardless of where you live. And then so those two, I, I remember pretty early on um, recognizing as uh, uh, resources that kind of opened my eyes up to the fact that a lot of this stuff, you don't have to go into the deep, dark wilderness to find these resources a lot of times, right? Um, in fact, many times you're more likely to find them on the side of the road <laughs> yeah. uh, somewhere than, than you are, you know, in the, you know, in a, on a two-hour hike deep into the woods. Um, <clears throat> depending upon, you know, what, uh, what type of plant that you're looking for especially when you start thinking about these old world plants that were brought over uh, with settlers and things like that many times those types of plants um, they prefer edges you know they like to grow along uh, where a pasture meets a forest or where a road has been cleared on the sides and things like that so you know another example would be like uh, mullein or uh, here in Arkansas, um, one of my favorite uh, hand drill materials is a plant called yellow ironweed, uh, it's all, which is also known as wingstem. makes one of the best hand drills I've ever used. 
And a lot of people know what it looks like. They've seen it. They just didn't know it was called that, and they didn't know you could use it for that. Um, but, it, again, it likes to grow on those transition areas along the edges. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think the, the more you get out and the more you start to just try to pay attention, uh, the more you start realizing that there, a lot of this stuff is, is kind of all around us, even in, uh, you know, other urban areas sometimes you know you don't have to go terribly deep into the the wild so to speak uh, to find these types of things that can be very useful which is really fun um really not you know i was gonna say for kids but not just for kids really for anybody you know it's such a great thing to sort of open somebody's eyes to a resource um even something as simple as green briar you know just walking through the woods pulling off handful of uh fresh green briar leaves and just kind of eating those um as you go through it's it's just uh those types of experiences add layers to the connection that you have when you're out in the woods and so if you can learn to take and but take in a respectful way you know you don't want to walk up to any plant and pull every single leaf off of it you know or cut everything down you know um you know, once you learn an appropriate ratio and depending upon who you talk to, like I use a seven to one ratio. So if I'm going to take one thing, I want to make sure that there's seven left in the environment uh, that I can leave there to continue to, you know, propagate that species or that resource, whatever that is. And so, um, but once you show people that, you know, a lot of these types of resources, whether it's edibles, medicinals, resources for fire, things of that nature, once you know what to look for, um, it really opens your eyes up to, you know, what you really can do. And that's not to say every time you need something, it's going to be there, because that's certainly not the case either. I've, I've, uh, there's been plenty of times when I thought I was going to do something in one place, and after a half hour of looking, uh, I was like, well, maybe I'm not going to do that after all. Um, and that certainly goes back to, you know, learning a little bit more about, your environment, the area that you're in, and seasons, of course, you know, what's likely to be available depending upon the season that you're in. Um, and just because something's growing doesn't mean that it's at the right stage of life or the right stage of decay to be harvested and used for what the intended purpose that you may be uh, going for. Um, so there's just, yeah, the learning just never stops. Uh, that's the fun part about it. So, <laughs> so it's the frustrating but fun part, both, I guess. So there's a few things you mentioned that I want to cover a little bit just to clarify. So when you talked sure. about the yellow, yellow iron weed and yeah. you talked about it for the bow drill, you're talking like take the fibers from the stem or something like that and use it for cordage or what? Uh, no, actually, no. And, and if I said bow drill, I meant hand drill. Okay. Um, and yeah, so it would be used if folks are from familiar with like a mullen, uh, it would be used similarly as a mullen stock would. And so you would cut that down, uh, for beginners. If you're making a hand drill, I'll often use, um, about the length of my, from my armpit to my wrist is a pretty good length. Obviously you want to find a stock that's as straight as you can get. Um, and it needs to be dead and dry. Um, and many of these uh, plants that after they're, they're, you know, they flowered and you're moving into the fall and winter seasons when they die, that stalk that was green in the summer months will turn very hard and woody. 
And the thing about those types of stocks is that they have a woody exterior that provides a lot of good rigidity for strength, but on the inside, they have pith that's much softer. And so unlike a tree branch that's going to be basically the same density all the way through, um, or similar density, these plant stocks um, are going to be much more favorable for a hand drill because you don't have the mechanical advantage of the bow like you do in a bow drill. And so you can't achieve um, the speed and the pressure because you're not using a bow and you're not using a bearing block. But the nice thing about hand drill, and I think I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of folks about, do you, what do you prefer, hand drill, bow drill? And, of course, you've got, you know, fire plow and fire saw and other methods as well. But, but I have gotten to where I much prefer the hand drill over any other method, assuming I can find the right resources, because I can make the kit much, much faster, and I only need two components, really. I need the drill, and I need a hearth board. And if I have plants around me and, you know, if you know, if you know what to look for, they, they, you can find them, um, especially along those edges and transition areas. And then from there, you're just looking for a white wood that is going to be appropriate for a hard sport. So if you've got cottonwood around here in the Ozarks, we've got umbrella magnolia. Uh, even cedar can work, although western cedar is good. Our eastern red cedar here. In Arkansas can work, but you need to use the sapwood, not the heartwood. Um, that red heartwood is really too dense uh, to work all that well, in my opinion, and you kind of end up fighting it a lot. So if you, if you can get the white sapwood from the cedar, it actually makes pretty good heartboard as well. Um, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit on that, but um, <laughs> right. back to, yeah, so but back to the, the yellow ironweed, the thing about that that makes it so good is because it tends to grow straight, it's got that firm woody exterior, and it has a, not, a that softer center pith, and that soft part in the middle is really what's going to help you to get a good ember. And so nice. I, I like that resource a lot, and it's readily available, at least in our part of the country. So I actually just identified mullen the other day. I, and I even had some in my yard on the back edge of my property, and I'm like, like early yep. spring, I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, it almost uh-huh. looks like lamb's ear, but it wasn't, you know, I knew it wasn't, and it had kind of like the rosette shape to it, and I'm like, what the heck is this? But then it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then I was like, man, right. I wonder what that is. And then once it started getting that center stalk and flowering, I was like, okay, I know what that is now. But I still didn't know what it's used for. I mean, is there any other uses for that plant, or is that pretty much the only thing you found? No, yeah, mullen, mullen is definitely a, a multi-use plant, and I always am really pleased when I find it because many people know it <laughs> for toilet paper, quite honestly. It is you know, soft. It's soft. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's soft. It's got a nickname, Cowboy Toilet Paper. So if you come across that stuff, and I've totally done this before, um, and you, you know, you need to go do your business. Uh, if you can pull off a few leaves of that, go dig your hole, take care of your business and bury it all, cover it up. Um, you know, you've, uh, minimized your impact. You haven't burned or buried any, uh, toilet paper or anything like that. You didn't have to carry any toilet paper out. And, um, it's just a real nice resource for that type of use. Um, the second thing about it is that if you can uh, harvest the leaves and dry them um, really, really dry. You can make a tea with those, and the, that tea is good for respiratory ailments 
and that type of thing. Um, I will drink that in the wintertime uh, if I get a cough or, you know, just any, any congestion and that sort of thing in my chest. So I do like uh, that for that purpose. And then, of course, uh, the uh, harvesting the, the stalk when it's dead for um, – it, it really is best as um, as the hand drill part of the kit, but on occasion, I've been able to build the whole kit, uh, tender, uh, hand drill, and hardboard out of one mowing plant. You have to get a little bit lucky, but at the very base of the mowing plant, uh, the root, you're just above the root, um, that is the densest part of the wood or of the, the woody material. And it is almost like wood. It, it very, has very little pith left in it. And so if you can find a good thick piece of that, you can pull it out. And if it's, you know, it, it can be tricky because it's right at the ground. So it may have a high moisture content. Of course, that's not ideal either. But if you can carve that out um, and get a decent uh, hearth board out of it and then use the upper part for the spindle and use the dry leaves, uh, if they're dead for your tender, you, it's a kind of a one-stop shop for fire as well. Um, you, have, you need a little luck because I've tried it before and haven't been able to do it. And a lot of times it's because the, the bottom of the plant was either too rotted or too much moisture content. Um, but if you find a real good one that hasn't been dead too long, uh, it's a great resource for a lot of things. Yeah. So earlier you talked about the, the broadleaf plantain and then so narrow leaf plantain we used to play with it all the time on the playground and take it. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, me too. Yep. yep. Make those little shooter things. Well, yeah, yeah, make a little shooter. I showed my daughter how to do that yep. yesterday, and she yep. thought it was so cool. And then she came running in and told her mom that she knew that what broadleaf and narrowleaf plantain was, but she had a hard time saying plantain, but my wife figured out what she was talking about, and so she thought she was right. so cool. Um, yeah. But so oh, when yeah. you teach That's your classes – what what are you teaching like as far as plants for for your first time students or something like that? Uh, you know, I don't have like a set thing because, and I don't I don't teach any plant specific classes. Like I don't at this time have any classes where we only focus on plants. What I have done in the past is I'll be doing a field navigation course, or you know maybe a survival course, or maybe even a fire course. And throughout that course, as we're walking and gathering materials, I just try to look and see what's available and point those things out, you know. And obviously, that's very seasonal, uh, to, you know, depending upon what's out there. So in the winter months, you're not going to find a lot of wild edibles in the Ozarks. Uh, it's going to be really difficult here, you know. Um, there are some things you can dig up, Um and find, but oftentimes I'm going to be, you know, if it's not, if I'm having challenges finding things that are wild edibles, you know, maybe hickory nuts or something like that, or of course acorns, um, but I may be looking for other resources like uh, uh, coal extenders, you know, a good example of that would be something like uh, beach blight mold. Um, if you're in a beach forest, if you can find that stuff, that's an awesome resource. If no one's ever used the fire steel with that or using it as part of your kit as a coal extender, that works really well. So, um, you know, I, I don't have, or I, I really never have had any classes where I'm focusing specifically on like medicinals or edibles or even fire resources. It's kind of more, um, 
teaching skills and then from there just kind of like oh and by the way here's this resource edible medicinal whatever it may be and sometimes well we may actually harvest it and use it and other times you know if i'm less familiar with it i may point it out and be like hey this is something that you might want to consider doing a little bit more reading about uh, because it could be useful to you nice no, that's pretty cool. So then, so your courses are pretty much just like bushcraft, uh, wilderness, wildcraft skills, stuff like that then? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, it depends. Um, some of the, the most popular ones that I do are always the fire classes and then the navigation courses. And I teach three different levels of nav uh, courses. So we do a basic map and compass. We do an advanced navigation and then i do a field navigation the first two are on site at our shop and um, we do go outside we have some green space um, and so we can do some uh, map of compass drills outside and things of that nature but the field class we actually go off site into the woods and we actually set like a full-on nav course and and do a lot of different kinds of Map and compass work, but also uh, terrain association on topographical maps and things of that nature. And that's definitely one of those classes where I try to you know, point out other resources um, as I can. So, yeah, one of the things that um, I, I really need to better myself on and, and do a lot more of in learning is definitely the land navigation skills. It's one of those things that you, you rely so much on your cell phone because you've always got it with you now and you've got all your different new apps, Onyx and Basemap and all that, that you do that. And then you've always got, you know, I've got a GPS, but you know, one day, what if I don't have that or I got to rely on that? That's something I really need to work on. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that is a it's definitely a uh, underdeveloped skill for most people that like to spend out you know time outside for a variety of reasons. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're a backpacker, a hunter, a bushcrafter, whatever you're into. Um, there are pretty compelling reasons to try and and hone your skills uh, on traditional land navigation using a map and a compass uh, and even to take it a step further you know using things like the stars and things like that you know are really interesting too it's kind of fun to go on a night hike and you know obviously have your navigation have your uh whether it's your phone or whatever in your pocket ready to go as a backup but you know see if you can locate uh, polaris uh, the north star and get your bearings and you know do those kinds of things but for most of us, um, you know, learning how to use a compass and use a topographical map, orient that map, um, learn a little bit about magnetic declination in your area and what the difference is between true north and magnetic north so that you can make sure that, you know, your map's lined up properly and if you need to be concerned about that or not. And then from there... Um, taking basic azimuths or field bearings and then learning some basic terrain association skills um, so that you can uh, recognize uh, the relationship of the topographical lines to one another, learn to follow handrails, learn about backstops, learn how to aim off and do things of that nature. Um, because it, it it's a multifaceted thing. One is the 
the practical component of knowing how to look after yourself if and when technology fails, right? So if your phone fails or your GPS fails, something like that, if you've got a paper map and a compass, um, you know, you're in pretty good shape. So when you refer to backstops, are you talking about like identifying a terrain feature or something to orient yourself in case you go past your mark for where you're going to go? That's exactly what I'm talking about. A backstop is something that is going to be an indicator that you have passed your main objective and you've gone too far and it will let you know that you need to turn around and figure out where you went wrong, basically. Okay. So where'd you end up uh, learning the whole land nap thing? Was it... Uh... I, you know, it really was tr a lot of trial and error, a lot of, uh, quite honestly, reading books. Um, you know, I've read, um, there's a, a years ago, there's a book called Staying Found that I read, and I, we still carry that book in our store. Um, and But a lot of it is, quite honestly, from climbing trips and backpacking trips using topographical maps. You know, I, when I st first started, going on trips of that nature, there were no phone apps. I mean, I didn't have a smartphone back then. And so, um, I had a GPS, you know, years back, but, um, they were very different than the type of GPS now, you know, and even nowadays, I mean, um, you know, I will still use, I mean, on my, I've got a Garmin right here on my wrist. Um, but I don't use the type of GPS that really is like color mapping or anything like that. For me, what I want out of a GPS is a coordinate. I want a numerical number or a, that's going to give me a position. And I use UTM as the coordinate system that I like to use. And I always carry topographical paper maps that have a UTM grid on them. And I use that as a backup way to check myself when I need to. Or if I'm going somewhere where it's going to be really challenging terrain and you know, I, I just, I don't want to spend the time or, or run the risk of running into a situation where I'm having a tough time sort of finding my way. Um, and I just want to be able at a glance, you know, confirm my position. And so, you know, if you've got a, whether it's whatever, a phone, a traditional GPS or watch, but if you've got something that can give you that, uh, that numerical information, and then you can just kind of you know, find the margins on your map, the, either one at the top or the bottom or either of the sides, Come the, bring those together, find the grid square that you're in, uh, and then from there you can kind of look at your position. It's really handy. Um, but even without using a GPS, you know, once you learn how to read the terrain, um, you, you know, you can still look after yourself. But the, the thing about that is, is if you're going to do that type of navigation, the map needs to be in your hand and not in your backpack. Um, and that's one of the things that I see so many people do is they're going to go on a hiking trip or a hunting trip or whatever. And they buy this map and maybe they study it a little bit beforehand, but they get ready for the trip and they shove the map somewhere in the top lid of their backpack or, you know, put it in a case or something like that. And that's the worst place for that map to live because you're not going to look at it. And, you know, if you're really doing land navigation and you're going to be doing it solely off a topographical map that map should be in your hand um or you know when what i tend to do is oftentimes i wear you know whatever pants i've got on i like pants with large uh cargo pockets on them and that's because i keep the map right there and it's in and out of that pocket a thousand times every day um and sometimes i'll just fold the map in such a way that uh you know it fits nicely in my hand and i 
I pin it between, uh, or my, I'll pin the thump, the compass between my thumb and my map, and they're just out, you know. And if you want to get good at land nav, that's what you've got to do. You've got to keep that gear in your hands, and you've got to constantly compare what you're seeing on the map to your surroundings. Um, at least that's the only way that I've ever been able to get any good at it. So if you were going to tell somebody a type of compass or something, you know, what would you recommend for somebody to get? Um, there are a handful of variables that are going to come into play uh, in making that decision. Um, one of the first things I'm going to think about is something that is sturdy, reliable, and is a, what I would just refer to as a base plate compass, something that's flat, that's got a straight edge on one side so that I can lay that down on the surface of my map and it gives me something that I can use to draw a line with uh, if I'm going to plan a route of travel on a topographic map, that type of thing. Um, and one of the second features that I tend to really look for if I'm going to spend the money on a compass is to get one that has adjustable declination on it. And basically what that means is there's either a way to twist the bezel on the compass or there's a set screw on it so that I can go ahead and compensate for either east or west declination. And kind of more specifically what I'm talking about there is the difference between true north um, and magnetic north as we travel uh, east or west of the line of zero, which happens to run kind of close to where the Mississippi River uh, runs more or less down the, the middle of the U.S. And so as you travel further from that in one direction or the other, um, there's a degree of error you have to compensate for. And if you don't have a compass that will adjust from that, um, you know, it can be a little bit of, of uh, math every time you take a compass bearing. So that's another feature that I like. Um, you know, here where I'm at in Arkansas, our degree of deviation is only, it's like a degree and a half or something like that. So it's, in, in many cases, it's almost negligible. But for those folks closer to the coast, it matters more. Um, the other thing that sounds kind of sort of trivial in a way, but it's really important is to make sure that you look closely at it and then you can read it. Because sometimes the numbers and the tick marks uh, are so small on a lot of compasses that people purchase them and they don't really look that closely and then they get out in the field and they start trying to use them and they realize that without a magnifying glass or you know a, a nice set of eyeglasses or something they can't even read the compass that they've got in their hands so um you know finding one that's user-friendly and just has a nice set of features on it but it need not be complicated um you know if it's got a sighting mirror on it that's going to help for taking more accurate field bearings uh, or azimuths but um you know, for folks that just want to do some kind of rudimentary compass, use it to orient their topographical map um, and just sort of look after themselves, you know, for a lot of times that's not even completely critical. So those are kind of the things I'd go through. So um, is there like any particular one that you would recommend or a model uh, or anything? Sure. Um, I'm uh, For years, I've been a big fan of the Sunto MC2. I've used that compass for a long time. It's been very reliable for me. Um, I believe the Sunto compasses are still made in Finland. Um, and so uh, as far as their quality and workmanship and everything, they at least for my own purposes, they've served me quite well over time. Um, there's some other good ones out there. Brunton's an American-made compass uh, that makes a pretty decent product as well. Um, you know, in the end, it's just kind of looking at some and finding one that's got the right set of features for how you're going to use the compass. Nice. So um, one of the other things I was kind of going to ask you a little bit about, I heard you talk about flint napping with uh, with clay. Yeah. And uh, so 
you got into that kind of in college or something, right? And then you got out of it for a while and decided, you know what, if I'm doing a primitive type hunting, I want to make my own tips. Is that how it kind of came about? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of dabbled in and out of, uh, you know, trying out flint napping for a number of years. And it's one of those things that, um, you know, you realize after a while, you're never going to get any good at it unless you really focus and uh, commit uh, to putting the time in um, because it, it's definitely an art form. And even though I've been doing it uh, regularly for years now, um, I still in many ways consider myself a novice. I mean, I can I can make arrowheads that will definitely take game and um, I've shot a lot of points and, you know, I build arrows regularly and stuff like that. But in terms of um, what's possible in the world of flint napping, um, it, there's just kind of no end to it. Um, and you can always refine your skills and always get better. Um, but uh, that's definitely how I got started. So when uh, when you're doing your whole bow setup and your arrow and everything, I mean, is it like completely traditional to where it's like uh... – what do you call it? Cat God or, or, um, something like that or uh, sinew on the arrows? Um, on the arrows. Yeah. On the, the ones that I build are typically 100% uh, sinew that I usually harvest from a white tailed deer. So the point would be a, a stone arrowhead that I've napped. The shafts are often going to be, um, river cane mm-hmm. that I harvest myself. It could be a hardwood shaft. Um, river cane is nice because, um, if you're in an area anyway, where it grows, uh, plentiful, because if you take your fine, you can find shafts that are nice and straight. Um, and it doesn't take a whole lot of work to harvest a decent amount of material and they take, uh, and set from heat pretty nicely. So, um, you can hand straighten them and with heat, when they set, they hold their straightness pretty well. Um, whereas, um, like taking, wood shaft or hardwood material and you know like milling that or carving it down in my experience is a lot more time consuming um, but you can definitely do it um and then typically i'm using uh, wild turkey feathers uh for the fleshings and then uh for the glue um pine pitch and then the, that sinew to to have everything so do you tend to like keep pine pitch around pretty much for just about everything or yeah Yeah. antiseptic and yeah i use it pretty regularly um you know uh we i don't know one of the things that uh, it's easier you can definitely find it here and i've harvested pine pitch in arkansas but i i actually get it when i go out west a lot for whatever reason um if i'm in you know uh you know, the desert places like that, which I try to visit a lot because I just like that country out there. Um, I tend to, it just, for whatever reason grows, uh, or, um, is easier to find out there. So sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll bust off a piece here and piece there and kind of bring it back with me if I'm in a place where that's appropriate. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a nice way to get it. Um, I like it when it's kind of in crystalline form, because if it's running down the tree, you've kind of got to spoon it off and it becomes kind of a mess to sort of, package it up and carry it out <laughs> right I mean, you can find it when it's kind of like crystalline form that's kind of nice and then um just mixing that with uh some charcoal from your campfire and then usually some kind of animal droppings um like rabbit droppings that type of thing works really well they even use white-tailed deer droppings that sort of thing they're just, they're just if they're real good and dry that material will act like kind of a binder inside it doesn't take much at all but it kind of helps hold it all together 
Is that because it's like fibrous if it's like yeah. a rabbit or a deer or something? Yeah, exactly. So you can um, mix that in there. And I don't have like a secret ratio or anything like that. I just kind of work with it until I get the sort of viscosity and consistency the, the way that I want it. Um, and then um, you can either make balls with it or just literally put a stick in there and twist the stick until you, you know, get enough of it. Um make it basically looks like a little corn dog, you know, when you're done. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. And then your, your bow itself, uh, you're, you're making self bows, right? I am. I don't have like a massive amount of experience. I've made a few bows. Um, and the last one I did, um, was actually uh, last summer. And, um, that was an Osage orange, uh, from a stave that someone had given to me. Um, and, it turned out really great. It's definitely the best uh, hunting bow, um, and that's the bow that I'm planning on doing most of my deer hunting with probably this fall um, here in Arkansas. And um, but I harvested a a, a nice uh, hickory tree this spring that's in my garage uh, drying right now. I've already got it processed down into staves, and I think I got 11 or 12 staves out of that. And all those are going to end up being bows um, from hickory. So. Um, you know, one more area where I, I feel like um, definitely still have uh, quite a bit to learn. But um, that last one I made really came out nice. It's pulling right at 45 pounds at, at uh, 27 inches, which is about my draw length. And, um, yeah, no question, it's it's accurate and it's doing the job. So I'm hoping to get a, get a chance to take a deer with that this fall. That's pretty cool. So I'm kind of curious, what's, what's your hunt plans other than deer? I mean, do you typically go after bears or anything too or um i haven't done a lot of bear hunting although i'm interested in getting into bear hunting but i've been a deer hunter and bow hunter really most of my life since i was a kid you know and i've, I've been uh shot a lot of deer with, with rifles as well you know I've, I've gun hunted too so I'm, I'm by no means like i'm not one of these bow hunters that's like against gun hunting or anything like that like to me i'll definitely i got no problems picking up a rifle with <laughs> What's shooting a deer? I mean, that's putting food in the in the on the table. You know what I mean? Um, and so, uh, but it, what I would prefer to do um, for my as a way to spend my time and um, you know just the way I love to to get out in the woods and and uh, and hunt myself is definitely with a bow. And I years ago I even used to hunt with compound bows and stuff, but I've kind of gotten away from that. I much prefer the um, traditional and, and really now I would classify more as like truly primitive. Um, cause even I've got a couple of nice self bows. I've got a buddy named uh, Corey Hawk, uh, who's a, a full-time professional boyer. Um, and we, we actually have a, a hunt coming up. We're going elk hunting, uh, in September. Um, and, uh, we're going to, on that particular trip, we're going to use his, uh, bows because he's a professional. He does it full time. He may, he makes some absolutely beautiful stuff. Um, so that's kind of my first big hunt of the year. Um, and, uh, when I get back from that trip, uh, I'll may hopefully be doing a bear hunt. Um, if time allows, you know, it kind of depends on the uh, personal, <laughs> you know, family and work and all that kind of stuff. But if I can make it happen, I, I, I hope to do some bear hunting, um, but definitely as much deer hunting as, as I can get in this fall. And that'll mostly be with my own homemade equipment. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Hopefully one of these days after talking to, uh, talking to clay, I want to go down to 
Arkansas and do a little bit of hunting because you buy the license, you can do bear and deer and everything else yeah. along with it. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of good opportunities in Arkansas. We got a lot of public land down here. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I'm pretty sure Arkansas is the only state where you know it's not easy to get all the tags, but you can shoot a black bear, a deer, a uh, elk, and an alligator all in the same state. Is, I mean, is there a lot of like elk or, I mean, what no, did they do? That... Not a lot. No, we, in fact, the draw, the public land elk draw in Arkansas don't, I'm not, this won't be exact, but I want to say they only pull like 30 or so tags total for it. So it's a very small draw. Now there are, if you've got private land that's within those zones, you can hunt elk on those. And I've, that's the way I've been able to hunt elk here in the past is because I had friends that, um, owned public land and were able to get a tag or two and, and use it, do it that way. Um, but, um, no, there's not a lot of elk, so it's, it's not an easy hunt to do in the sense that it's uh, accessible, but it is possible. Um, it, you know, and, you know, we do have a, a decent elk population here. So, um, those, those elk, are they like a, a reintroduction or Correct. something like that? Yeah. Yeah, they were reintroduced. I forget how many years ago it was now. Um, I should know that off the top of my head because I've read it multiple times, but I've, it escapes me. But yeah, they were reintroduced. Um, and it's predominantly in the Buffalo River Valley um, is where those occur. That's pretty cool. So I think that's probably all the questions I have for you. Um, maybe one day, hopefully I can get out there and train with you, do some of that stuff. I think it'd be pretty cool. Visit the yeah. store. But uh, why don't you tell people where we can, uh, where they can find you, and maybe contact you, or even shop your store? Sure, yeah, I appreciate that. So yeah, um, once again, uh, my business is called the Packrat Outdoor Center. It's in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You can find us at packratoc.com. Um, we're predominantly a, a brick and mortar business, um, but we do have uh, an online presence um, in terms of not only education but equipment. You can purchase things off of our website. Um, but it's by no means, you know, everything that we have. Um, uh, we of course got a Facebook page, Packrat OC, and then we have Instagram, um, same thing, Packrat OC. And, but then my bushcraft stuff is, uh, Packrat Bushcraft. So you can find me there and, um, you know, depending on the time of the year, you, you never know <laughs> what I'm going to kind of be into. It, it's going to be shifting, uh, more into hunting here pretty quick. Um, but other times of the year, you know, and, and certainly if I'm teaching classes and stuff like that, I'll, I'll post up stuff about classes and, um, you know, early in the summer, I was posting pictures of doing that canyoneering trip. So it's, it's a little bit of everything. That's awesome, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and sharing some knowledge with us today. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. We'll talk to you. Take care. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.
A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.